All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27? If you're new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We are in Matthew 27, the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. And so now in verse 11 we read, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Now Pilate's court, as we said last week, opened at 5 a.m. And when he got to work that morning, he found members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, waiting for him with a prisoner in tow, Jesus. That morning, they had already met earlier in the house of Caiaphas, the Roman-appointed high priest, and had determined that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and therefore worthy of death. However, at this time in Jewish history, Rome had taken away from the Sanhedrin the power to execute those found guilty of a capital offense, so they had to come to Pilate. They needed him to also convict Jesus, to declare him guilty, and order him executed. Now, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees, those of the Sanhedrin, realized that Pilate would never convict a man to be executed based on religious charges. Blasphemy, they knew wasn't going to cut it. Uh, they knew they had to come up with some charges that would stick in a Roman court of law and be worthy of death. So they came up with three separate charges. Any one of these would have been grounds for uh, Pilate to uh, find Jesus guilty and worthy of capital punishment. But three of them, they figured there's no way this guy's going to wiggle out of this. All right, We hit him with three charges against Jesus. He's going to have to convict him. What were they? First of all, and they were all false, by the way. First of all, that Jesus was perverting the nation. He was a revolutionary that posed a threat to the empire. Secondly, that he was telling people not to pay taxes to the Roman government, thus undermining the prosperity of the empire. And thirdly, that he claimed to be a king therefore threatening the power and position of the emperor himself. Serious charges. Pilate thought, uh, sought to focus on the third one, because in his mind, that was the most serious of the three, that Jesus claimed to be a king, therefore undermining the emperor's power and authority. And that's why he asked him here in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gave him a pretty clear reply. He said, it is as you say. Now, as we have been working our way back and forth from Matthew to John's gospel, and this morning we're going to jump around to various gospels, because together they give us a composite picture of what really went on that morning. So in John's gospel, John, and by the way, John's is the most detailed of all the gospels with regard to the final days, but especially the final day of Jesus' life before the cross. And so John records in John chapter 18... Jesus comes before him. Pilate asks, are you a king? He says, it is as you say. Then Jesus turns around and he starts questioning Pilate. Okay, He said to him in verse, 18, uh, verse 34, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Uh, Mr. Pilate, <laughs> do you want to know this because you want to know it or did somebody else tell you to ask that about me? Now, Pilate's irritated. It's 5 o'clock in the morning. Maybe he hasn't had his coffee yet. He's a little cranky. And here a prisoner now cross-examining him. He gets a little irritated, all right? He says in verse 35, what, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answers this question. You ask me if I'm a king? My kingdom, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, the Jewish leadership. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. To which Pilate, I believe, sarcastically responded, What is truth? And walks away. He goes out to the Jewish leadership. Because they're not, he's not, they, they don't want to come into Pilate's judgment hall, the praetorium. Because it's Passover. And these very righteous, godly men don't want to walk into the court of a Gentile judge lest they be defiled. Here they're railroading the Son of God outside the Pilate's court. Doesn't bother them, okay? So Pilate goes back and forth. He goes outside to talk to the Jewish leaders who have brought this charge against Jesus. Then he goes in and talks to Jesus. He talks to Jesus. He, you know, interrogates him a little bit, comes back out and says to the Jewish leadership, look, I determine this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. You see, when Jesus explained to Pilate, he was a king. Are you a king? Yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is really not of this world. Uh, my servants don't fight. I have no standing army. My kingdom is a kingdom of truth. I don't know what Pilate thought at that moment. Probably thought, this guy's a little nutty, but Pilate had dealt with a lot of nuts in his time on the bench. And so, but one thing he did know, Jesus was not a dangerous revolutionary. So he comes out and says, look, I, I judge this guy is innocent of any wrongdoing. However, the Jewish leadership were insistent. They were not going to be denied. And they no doubt started screaming to Pilate all the accusations against Jesus. But in the course of doing so, they mentioned Jesus was from Galilee. Now, Pilate was a true politician. He's no fool, okay? Pilate was a true politician. He, he doesn't want to deal with this case, all right? He's becoming more and more uncomfortable with this whole thing, as we're going to see in a moment. So once he hears that Jesus was really from Galilee, of course, born in Bethlehem, which was Judea, but raised in Nazareth in Galilee, did most of his ministry up in the Galilee. When Pilate heard he really was from Galilee, he figured, this is great. Okay, that's Herod's jurisdiction. I'm going to drop kick this baby right into Herod's lap and be done with it. All right? Now, Herod was in town for the Passover. And so Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod's court. You could pick that up in Luke 23, starting in verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. Oh goody, here's Jesus, he's going to entertain me now. Then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused Jesus. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. We talked last week about why Jesus had nothing to say to Herod. Get the CD if you weren't here. But so Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. So now Pilate finds Jesus. It's a pesky problem that just won't go away. He's trying to get rid of Jesus. Jesus keeps coming back, okay? And here he is standing in front of Pilate once again. Now I find that this is the case with everybody who is being asked to make a judgment about Jesus. As much as they try to get out of making that decision, the Holy Spirit keeps bringing Jesus before them. Maybe you experience this with somebody you work with, who was one of those tenacious, even aggravating Christians. They kept witnessing about Jesus, right? 
I mean, you, you just want to change the subject, get away from them, but here they were again, just with a track on the desk, something, you know, just always trying to bring Jesus in front of you, right? You, you, you leave work, you run from this person, and then the Holy Spirit brings somebody else into your life that, you know, confronts you with Jesus. That's how we get saved. The Holy Spirit is very tenacious, and he demands that we decide what to do with Jesus. Pilate wasn't going to get out of this, and neither can we. We can run, but we... <laughs> The wise man once said, you can run, but you can't hide. The Holy Spirit is going gonna, is gonna to get you. As somebody once said, the hound of heaven is very tenacious, and he will, he will pursue until he has, you know, got a hold of you. You may not wind up accepting Jesus, but he's, gonna, he's coming after you. He wants you to know who Jesus is. Well, back in Luke 23, verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death uh, has been done by him. Now, Pilate had a custom as a kind of a goodwill gesture uh, toward the Jewish population living in and around Jerusalem Every year at the Passover time, he would let them choose a prisoner to be set free during the Passover. The Jewish people were not the easiest people to govern, as we're going to see next week, although Pilate brought a lot of the problems on himself. But here he's trying to be a good politician, you know. He's trying to, every year at Passover, he knows it's a big time of the year for the Jewish people. Uh, okay, look, is a, a gesture of goodwill. You could pick any prisoner in my jail. I'll release him to you, okay? Now, because Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He wanted to let him go. So what he does is he chose the most hardcore, wicked criminal he had in his prison at that time, a guy named Barabbas. Takes Barabbas out of prison, stands him next to Jesus in front of the crowd. Now, Pilate figured the people would no doubt choose Jesus instead of Barabbas. I mean, they called Jesus their king. Surely they would choose their king over a notorious criminal. Pilate figured, this is, this is brilliant. This is how I'll get out of this, all right? I mean, I'll, I'll put the worst guy that I got in my jail next to the one they call their king. Certainly the people are going to choose their king over Barabbas. So John 18, verse 39, he said to the people, You have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. John says, now Barabbas was a robber. He was a thief. Why did the crowd choose Barabbas over Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 27, verse 20, the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. How did the Jewish leaders persuade the multitudes to choose Barabbas and condemn Jesus? Also, when you realize that four days earlier on Palm Sunday, many of these same people were, were crying Hosanna, which means save now, save now. They were worshiping Jesus as Messiah. Four days later, these same people are now calling for his execution. This tells us the crowd can be very fickle, okay? Very fickle. Public opinion can turn very quickly. You say, but yeah, but how did these leaders convince these people to choose Barabbas and condemn Jesus. Well, I think it was probably a, through a series or a combination of bribes, intimidation, but also, I believe, 
they went through the crowd saying, look, you think Jesus is your Messiah? Think again. I mean, Messiah, when he comes, we all know he's going to lead us in a revolt against Rome, overthrow the, the yoke of Roman oppression, and establish the kingdom. Jesus is a pacifist. I mean, he's telling us to love our enemies. Barabbas, he's an insurrectionist. I mean, he's already in prison because he led a revolt, one revolt against Rome. If anybody's your Messiah of the two, it's got to be Barabbas. Well, the people fell for it. They listened. Now, who was this Barabbas? Well, the Gospels tell us once again that he was a thief, a murderer, a liar, and an insurrectionist. The guy was a bad dude, okay? He's a bad guy. The name Barabbas literally means son of the father. It's Aramaic. Bar, you know, Simon Bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, Bar, and then Abba, which is the word for father. So Barabbas literally means son of the father. The question is, son of what father? Well, that's a good question. Obviously, he wasn't a son of God the Father. He was the son or a son of Satan. As Jesus put it in John 8 of the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. And here we see Barabbas following right in his father, the devil's footsteps. Guys, listen to me. This scene was a foreshadowing. We see here in this scene where the Jews reject their true Messiah, who was the son of the heavenly father, for another son, Barabbas, of another father, the devil. Barabbas, who was a rebel, a murderer, a liar, and a thief. They chose him that day 2,000 years ago. That was a foreshadowing of how the Jewish people someday in the future, and we believe in the not-so-distant future, will have rejected the true Messiah, the true Son of God, and will choose for themselves another son of the devil, another son of Satan, the ultimate son of Satan, the Antichrist, whom they believe, will believe, is their true Messiah, only to find out later on he is a false Messiah. Jesus said in John 5, 43, I have come in my Father's name, and me you did not receive. Another will come in his own name. Him you will receive. Speaking in the short term of Barabbas, but long term, the Antichrist. Now, as I said, Pilate was hoping that the crowd would choose Jesus instead of Barabbas. Back in Matthew 27, verse 15, we read now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner, whomever they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ, the Messiah? For he knew that they had, they had handed him, Jesus, over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message. Let me stop there. I told you last week that when Pilate began his day, <laughs> and in particular the first trial of the day, he was calm, rational, and professional. I mean, he had tried hundreds, if not thousands, of cases before this in the six years he had been governor of the region. I'm sure when he got to work that morning and found the Sanhedrin waiting, waiting there with a prisoner, he figured this case would be no different than the other cases he had presided over. No big deal, nothing out of the ordinary. But upon hearing the accusations against Jesus and then taking him aside privately and questioning him personally, again, Pilate was no fool. And he knew that Jesus was innocent and was being railroaded by his accusers. Now, guys, that in itself wasn't so unusual. Because people are falsely accused all the time by those 
who, for whatever reason, have it in for him. I mean, Pilate knew that. I mean, nothing out of the ordinary there, that somebody was being falsely accused in his court of something. What was odd in the extreme was that this man being falsely accused, Pilate knew he was being falsely accused, but this man standing before him wasn't trying to defend himself against these false accusations. I mean, that was very strange in Pilate's mind. I mean, he had seen over the years dozens of criminals who were guilty. He knew they were guilty, yet loudly proclaimed their innocence, defending themselves, or many who just simply pleaded for mercy. Yet when Pilate tried to get Jesus to say something in his own defense, he was silent. Matthew 27, verse 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now listen, we know that Jesus' silence was a fulfillment of prophecy. We all know Isaiah 53. Let me read it to you. You don't have to even turn there. You know it. Isaiah 53, verse 7. This was prophesied about Messiah seven centuries before Messiah was even born. Isaiah said he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was silent because he had come to die. He didn't come to defend himself. He was innocent. He knew that. In fact, everyone knew that. He came to die for the guilty, though, the innocent dying for the guilty. So we know why Jesus was silent that morning. But to Pilate that morning, (laughs) this was extremely odd behavior, to say the least, that an innocent man was not trying to defend himself. On top of that, Matthew records something that no other gospel writer records, something which no doubt added to Pilate's dissolving composure. In Matthew 27, verse 19, we read, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just, or in other words, innocent man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, whether or not this dream came from the Holy Spirit, we're not told. But it does beg the question, will God use dreams to speak to or to communicate important things to unbelievers? I believe yes. Before I came here this morning, I checked the news, as I often do, and I found an article that caught my attention, how that Muslims all over the world are having dreams where Jesus is coming to them. Now, it's been happening for a long time, no doubt since Pentecost, as one author attributed it to the promise that God gave the drill repeated by Peter in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all mankind And people are going to see visions and dream dreams. I know that they said that in 1844, 1892, two separate dreams were given to two separate Muslims who got converted and started Christian ministries in the heart of Muslim countries, one in Indonesia, the other one I forgot, but, you know, thriving Christian ministries. So this has been going on for a long time. But the article said in the year 2000, it started to escalate. And in the year 2005, it really ramped up. There are Muslims all over the world. It is not just Muslims. 
There's Hindus and others of different faiths. But the article focused primarily on Muslims. It's hard to find a Muslim, they said, that hasn't had a dream where Jesus has come to them. And I'm so grateful for that. Because these poor folks have been brought up in a satanic religion that glorifies violence and killing. People say Islam is a religion of peace and love. No, it isn't. The word Islam means submission. One of the cardinal beliefs or tenets of the Islamic faith is that, that you either convert the infidels or you kill them. I mean, all Muslims know that Islam is really not a religion of peace and love. There's 35, 50, I forgot what it was, warrior verses in the Quran that, that advocate the killing of non-Muslims if they don't convert. So Muslims know that. That's a propaganda tool to, to deal with non-Muslims, to make people think that Islam is really a religion of peace and love. But I, my heart goes out to these people because they have been brought up in a religious system that glorifies violence, that actually tells people that by killing others, women and children or anybody, that you'll have instant access into paradise and get your 70 virgins. So my heart is so blessed to hear that the Lord is actually appearing to Muslims all over the world in preparation for his return. And they are getting converted. The estimates I have heard is a million Muslims a month from all over the world are being converted to Christ. So God's working. So I believe God definitely uses dreams to touch people and visions. All right. Now, was this dream from the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I think it was. I think it was. One thing we do know for sure, the Romans believed the gods used dreams to communicate to mortals. And the fact that Pilate's own wife had a dream warning Pilate not to pass judgment on this righteous or innocent man, in fact, don't have anything to do with him. <laughs> no doubt unnerved. See, Pilate's becoming increasingly unnerved and anxious. First of all, his day has not gone like he thought it would. The first case of the day, he's got this guy in front of him, and this guy is strange. Uh, he's called a king, but he has no army. His followers don't fight. His kingdom is not really of the world. He's flat-out innocent. Pilate knows that, yet he's standing there quiet. He won't defend himself. Pilate's going, this is weird. This is odd. Then in the midst of the trial, his wife sends a message saying, look, I've had a lot of dreams about this guy today. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. All of this is causing Pilate to become more and more unnerved, especially because the Romans were very superstitious people when it came to dreams especially. And I think one of the reasons, this was one of the reasons he tried so hard from this point on to let Jesus go. One of the reasons. But if you think Pilate was a little bit anxious now, he's about to get, <laughs> to, to, to move into a full-blown panic in just a few minutes. And we'll see why in a moment. But again, first things first, it's, again, it's obvious from the Gospels that Pilate did not want to execute Jesus. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew the Jewish leadership had delivered him to Pilate out of envy. So he thought that by scourging Jesus, it would satisfy their lust for blood and would allow him to finally be able to let Jesus go. So we read in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands, actually closed fists, Pilate then went out again and said to them, the Jewish leaders, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now, 
We're not sure how to take this last statement by Pilate, behold the man. We weren't there to hear the inflection in his voice. Was he saying, look at this man? Surely he has been put through enough punishment for whatever crime you claim he is guilty of. Let's leave it at that and I'll let him go now. Or, this statement might be Pilate's way of expressing his awe and admiration for someone who has been beaten so badly and was still standing. Something like, wow, here standing before you is a real man. Look at this man. We don't know. We don't know. Either way, the bottom line is that unless you understand how brutal a scourging was, you won't have the capacity to appreciate what Pilate was saying, nor the depth of what Jesus endured to save us. A scourging was done at the scourging post, where a man's robe was removed from him, his back was exposed, he was tied to the scourging post, bent over, with his back fully exposed and his skin tight. The scourging itself was done with a cat of nine tails, a wooden handle wrapped in leather, and proceeding from the handle were nine thongs or leather straps embedded up and down each strap were jagged pieces of bone or broken glass, and at the end of each leather strap or thong there was a small lead weight. This whip was designed to rip off pieces of flesh with every lash. The Romans actually used scourging as an interrogation method. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, if they believe you were guilty of crimes against the state and you weren't talking, they would tie a prisoner to the scourging post and the Roman soldier would bring on the first lash across his back. If the prisoner confessed to a crime they thought he had committed, the next lash would be a little lighter. If he confessed to another crime, the next lash a little lighter. It was their way of uh, encouraging prisoners to confess what the Roman government believed they were guilty of. Now, if a prisoner did not confess any wrongdoing, each lash got progressively harder. Jesus was silent before his accusers because he had done nothing wrong, which meant at the end of the lashes that Jesus endured, he was getting the full brunt, the full strength of that Roman soldier bringing that lash across his back. The scourging was so brutal that a man's back was reduced to raw hamburger. Often ribs were exposed and organs. History records that some men went insane from the pain. And others simply died right there, many died right there at the scourging post from loss of blood. It was so brutal that Rome even forbid its own citizens to be scourged and eventually outlawed the practice altogether. The fact that Roman citizens were not allowed to be scourged under Roman law saved Paul the Apostle from a couple of scourgings, if you remember, in the book of Acts, because he was born a Roman citizen. Now, the question that Christians have wrestled with over the years is this. Why, if our salvation was purchased by Jesus dying on the cross, why did he have to endure the scourging? Well, apparently his suffering and death for our sins consisted of both the scourging and the cross. Both were involved in Jesus' atoning work on our behalf. We saw last week how that Jesus' crucifixion was actually predicted in the Old Testament. Prophesied about Psalm 22, verse 16, Zechariah 12, verse 10, two of the places that talked about how Messiah would be pierced. He'd be crucified. That was written 900 years before crucifixion was even invented. However, there are other verses in the Old Testament that also predicted Messiah would be scourged as well. Two of the more well-known verses, Isaiah 50, verse 6, 
Jesus speaking now again seven centuries before he became one of us, the incarnation. Speaking of this very event, the scourging, he said, I gave my back to those who struck me. And he says, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, his lashes, we are healed. And I have to believe that both the scourging and the crucifixion together was how the Lord Jesus paid for our sins. And it leaves us speechless and humbled by his great love for us. However, remember that Jesus also endured the beating at the hands of Pilate's soldiers. Very severe beating. It tells us they put a bag over his head and played a game. They actually had a name for it. I forgot what the name was, but the idea was they would show a prisoner each of their hands, put a bag over his head, and then one of them would punch the prisoner as hard as he could, take the bag off and say, okay, now which one punched you? Of course, the prisoner wouldn't know. And because the bag was over his head, he couldn't, you know, the reflexes wouldn't take him away from the blow. So he was getting the full brunt of those blows to his face. Not only that, but we read that eventually they took a crown of Judean thorns, wove it, excuse me, they took Judean thorns, wove them into a crown and put it on his head. Judean thorns were as strong as nails and six inches long. And they took rods and then pounded that crown of thorns into his skull. And Isaiah tells us they actually took his beard and pulled it out with their hands. Isaiah tells us later on that they so disfigured the Lord by doing this, he was no longer recognizable as a human being. And then on top of all of that, you add the brutal scourging. You can begin to understand why Pilate believed the crowd's thirst for blood would have been satiated and he could finally let Jesus go. However, that wasn't to be the case. Matthew 27, verse 21. The governor answered and said to them, Which one of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. The word Christ simply means anointed one. The Greek is Christos. Same idea as the word Mashiach in Hebrew, anointed one a term for the Messiah. But there are two things here we need to see. First of all, when asked to choose between the righteous and the lawless, the fickle crowd is always going to choose lawlessness over righteousness. We see it in our day. People want to say, well, everyone's doing it. And if everyone's doing it, can it be wrong? I guess they feel like the crowd, you know, if the majority of people feel it's right and are doing it, can't be wrong, right? Everyone can't be wrong. Guys, most, people, most crowds are never right. Whenever you give people a choice between lawlessness and righteousness, I'm talking about the world at large, they're always going to choose lawlessness over righteousness. Because righteousness comes from a, a desire to live for God, which comes into our hearts through the Holy Spirit when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. Nobody in this room wanted to live righteously before we got saved. And if left to ourselves, we would have chosen paths that were destructive, dangerous, unrighteous, I mean, some worse than others, no doubt. But the idea is that 
if left to themselves, the multitudes will always choose lawlessness over righteousness. We're seeing it all around us. It's not the Ten Commandments anymore. It's the Ten Suggestions. People feel they have the right to vote on what God has said and do whatever they think is right. But secondly, we need to see how that Pilate let the crowd make the decision for him as to what he was going to do with Jesus. He said to them, what shall I do with Jesus? What shall I then do with Jesus who is called Christ? In that regard, Pilate becomes an example of the place every human being finds him or or herself in when presented with the gospel. What am I going to do with Jesus who is called Christ? Every person has to make that decision for themselves. Pilate, unfortunately, let the crowd make that decision for him. You know how many people today are letting the crowd make the decisions to what they're going to do with Jesus? Why do people do that? Well, simply because, you know, they... As Jesus said to the Pharisees, you love the, the praise of men more than the praise of God. People don't want their friends turning. You know, I say the crowd, I mean their friends, co-workers, family members, neighbors. They, they don't want people to not like them. Good heavens, I don't want to be one of those Jesus freaks where people don't like me. So instead of doing, and they might even believe Jesus is who he said he is. They might even believe that being a Christian is the right way to live. But because they don't want to commit social suicide, because they don't want to be looked upon as a, you know, weirdo. They let the crowd decide for them what they're going to do with Jesus. That's tragic because you know what? When you stand before Jesus, you're not going to be able to say, well, Lord, I was afraid of what people were going to think of me. So certainly you can understand why I let them decide for me and I didn't receive you as Lord and Savior. He's going to say, no, I don't, I don't understand that. You, you needed to make a choice for yourself by letting others tell you what to do with Jesus, well, you're the only one who's going to bear the, the judgment now. John 9, 19, verse 5. Then Jesus came out. And he had been abused. He had been mocked. He had been beaten. He was wearing a crown of thorns that was, that was um, jammed into his skull. He had been scourged. Pilate brings him out. The crown of thorns, purple robe. Pilate says to the crowd, Behold the man. Look at this guy. Hasn't he been through enough? Certainly, this should be it now. Let me let this guy go. He's suffered enough. But the chief priests, officers saw him. It's like blood in the water. Jesus' blood had insatiated them. It made them more aggressive to call for his execution now. The chief priests and officers saw him. They cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Here it is now. Here's the real charge. Blasphemy because this man claims to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Guys, this is where Pilate really starts getting unglued now. You see, this guy is different. He's unusual. He's not acting like a normal person. Pilate's own wife says, have nothing to do with this guy. I've had dreams about this man. Remove yourself from this case any way you can. And now he comes to find out, and all of this is causing Pilate to become more and more 
anxious, unnerved. And now all of a sudden he finds out the real charges this man claims to be the son of God. Of course, Pilate would have heard the son of a God. And now Pilate's wondering if he is sitting in judgment upon a son of one of the gods. Now, you see, the Greeks and Romans believed that the gods and their children often came down in human form and interacted with mortal people. They knew that. They believed that. And here Pilate figures, uh-oh, what have I gotten myself into? Here I'm sitting in judgment on one of the sons of the gods? Well, he wasn't totally accurate there. Some of his fears were justified. I mean, he was sitting in judgment on, listen, not one of the sons of the gods, but on the only begotten son of the only true and living God. And as we said last week, even though Pilate sat in judgment of Jesus, he was really sitting in judgment of himself. Whatever he decided to do with Jesus, no, it wasn't going to affect Jesus. But someday Pilate would stand before not the judge of Judea like Pilate, but the judge of the whole universe and give an account. What Pilate, what Herod, what anyone in this world does with Jesus, how they judge him, doesn't affect him. It affects where they're going to spend eternity. All right, let's finish up. Matthew 27, verse 22. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. I believe he's innocent. You want to kill him? It's on your hands. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. And the nation of Israel has suffered ever since because of that very statement. You read that and go, wow. His blood be upon us and our children. Jesus said earlier in his ministry, by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Why? Because he said, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A heart of unbelief can't help but come through in the words that people speak. Well, verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now, I don't believe Matthew is giving to us a strict chronology of the events of that day. Because Matthew seems to put the scourging right before the crucifixion. I believe John, who gives us the most detailed look at the events of that morning, has given us the true chronology. And as I said, I believe Pilate let his soldiers mock Jesus, beat him, put the crown of thorns in his head and scourge him because Pilate was trying to release Jesus. He figured, these, these folks want blood. Let me ha- go ahead and have him scourged. And as John says in John chapter 19, it's obvious that Jesus was scourged first, brought out to the people, hoping that uh, Pilate hoping that he could finally let Jesus go. 
is they saw how beat up he was. Behold, the man, he suffered enough. Let me let him go. Of course, they said they wouldn't allow that. So finally, he had to crucify. Matthew doesn't give us a strict chronology, but we understand the events of that day is the idea. And so, folks, the trials are over. The trial, if I can put it that way, trials, quote, unquote. The trials are over. All that is left now is for the king to be crucified. And we will see that next week. Father, we thank you so much for your great love wherewith you loved us. That you could have judged us. You could have destroyed us as sinners. But you sent your son to save us because you loved us. And Lord Jesus, we know that you were no victim. You were a willing sacrifice. You said, I give my life. Nobody takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. And Lord Jesus, we are humbled by your great love. As we understand what you endured that morning, because you loved us and knew the only way for sin to be atoned for was if all was laid upon you, the sin of mankind, and you were brutalized, you were tortured, you were beaten. By your stripes we are healed. Lord, we thank you for your great love. And as we think upon what you endured for us, may it humble us. Give us grace, Lord, to live for you, to walk with you, to submit our lives in obedience to you. We just thank you for your great love, your great patience, and for your grace. It is offering salvation to us freely as a gift, which we receive by our faith, all because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.